Hello and welcome back to the Tez News Podcast. I'm Joshua Morris. Joining me a little bit later to go over key trends from A-level results data and apparently quiz me over my times tables knowledge is senior reporter Gronya Hallahan. But first, joining me today to take a look at data that suggests that catch-up funding might be best served going to our youngest pupils is reporter Matilda Martin. Tilda, welcome back to the podcast. How are you doing today? Yeah, I'm good, thank you. That's good to hear. So the big headline figure here for this story is that the number of very low attaining pupils in year two reading has more than tripled compared with pre-pandemic levels. Could you just go over some of the numbers uh, here for us, first of all? Yeah, of course. So yeah, this is a new um, Education Endowment Foundation report, um, and they very much kind of dug into the data behind how year two has been a well, year two reading and math has been affected by COVID. Um, so what they've done is they've compared attainment from uh, spring 2022 to spring 2007. Um, and what they found is the proportion of the very low attainers in the year group uh, for reading goes from 2.6% to 9.1%. So that is, you know, almost, you know, more than tripled, um, which is obviously quite concerning especially as we've had quite a big gap now, I'd say, since there's been a lockdown in schools. So, you know, the last, if we think back to the last, you know, lockdown where schools were closed was at the beginning of, of 2021. So a year yeah. and a half ago now, um, there's obviously still been disruption in schools and that is still having an effect on pupils as well. Interestingly, um, Maths hasn't been as badly affected. And I think this is something that we've been seeing, you know, in a lot of different studies as well. Um, you know, math seems to be something that that either is easier to catch up on or kids can can, you know, take part in more easily at home. Whereas if you think about reading and phonics, mm. parents aren't really going to be probably clued up on, you know, how to teach phonics and decode. So um it's definitely quite concerning. And I think the most concerning thing about this is the socioeconomic gap yeah. in terms of attainment. So um, since spring 2021, which is when they last looked at this cohort, um, they've seen no evidence of this gap decreasing or increasing. So that just basically means that the gap's widened and it's not getting any smaller. Yeah, it's interesting that you mentioned that, um, that difference there between maths and English, because that's something that I'll be going into more detail with uh, Gronya a bit later in the second half of the podcast. There are some similar stats here for, for younger pupils too, right? For four and five-year-olds in the, the early year foundation stage. Yeah, no. So what we're seeing here is so four and five-year-olds that are tested at the end of reception. Um, so if we think kind of back, you know, back to March 2020, these kids would have been around, you know, two, three, maybe some of them even one and a half. Um, so very much, you know, COVID hitting it, I'd say they're crucial years of development in a way. Um, so the way it works with the, with the early learning profile um, is they're tested against 17 early learning goals. Um, you know, these things include like, you know, they're looking at literacy, maths, but they're also looking at kind of like social development and things like that, which are all key um, to how you progress at school. And I think one of, just to kind of set the context and the background a little bit, um, you know, as we emerged out of lockdowns, schools are reporting that pupils are, are arriving not school ready. So, you know, you might have, you know, pupils who, you know, haven't been potty trained or, you know, can't actually interact with other children in the way that pupils pre-pandemic could because 
they haven't learned to share or things like that. Um, and all of these things do impact on learning uh, because, you know, if the teacher's having to kind of sort things out like that, no actual learning going on. So if we return to the data, the number of four and five-year-olds deemed to reach those expected levels of learning and the end of reception has plummeted um, hugely. Um, so we've got under two thirds of pupils um, marked as being at the expected level. So 63%, um, which in 2019, the figure was 70.7%. So quite a big, a big fall there. Um, and I think, again, the most shocking one is that less than half of disadvantaged pupils were assessed to be at the expected levels of learning across mm -hmm. all levels. So we've now got 47% of pupils who are eligible for free school meals achieving that expected standard. Um, and if we think about that in the context of what we've just spoken about with the year two reading, how is that going to impact then that level of attainment for those pupils in a few years' time? Yeah, this data feels like it was a long time coming, right? It's kind of confirmation of something that teachers have been saying for a while now that our, that our youngest people have been really heavily affected by COVID-related learning loss. Yeah, definitely. And I think, you know, when we had the, the budget last, last November um, in 2021, um, you know, that was one of the big questions people were asking. So, you know, extra catch-up funding went to secondary pupils. And I think one of the things that, that people were saying is, you know, while we're maybe not seeing the biggest effect on primary pupils so far, um, and they weren't seen to be as needy in terms of learning loss, people, you know, were warning back then that we're seeing pupils coming to school, not school ready, we're having to deal with other things rather than learning in the classroom. And there was definitely a sense that the data a year ago was hiding this. And definitely, I'd say, over the past nine months, we've seen study after study after study um, that primary pupils' early years are you know, seeing huge, huge knock-on effects from COVID. And I think slightly concerning now that all that, all that funding was, was going towards the secondary phase rather than, you know, being, being concentrated in primary. Yeah. And this is, this is something that our news editor, Mary Louise Clues, she focused on this story in our newsletter this morning. And the big question she posed was what kind of support the government would now put towards catch-up and tutoring? What, what is the picture like there? Uh, in terms of, of now? In terms of now, in terms of possible plans in the future, I guess she mentions in the in the newsletter that the, the funding that went towards secondary was something Rishi Shunak had overseen when Boris Johnson was prime minister. What's his focus going to be now? Now this kind of data has come out showing that there, there is this, um, this COVID-related learning loss for, for primary pupils, as teachers had been, had been saying. Yeah, yeah. And you will, so... So far, we, we haven't really seen any big sort of announcements in, in terms of concentrating catch-up towards primary pupils in early years. Um, I know that Ofsted has, you know, set out its five-year strategy wanting to focus on early years, um, and they actually published their first research review a few weeks ago now. Um, that's actually had a lot of backlash in the sector, actually, the early years sector already, for excluding reception um, from that um, series of reports. I think there are seven more due to come out. Um, so there is that. In terms of actual money, we're not seeing any anything else. Um, it definitely seems like the case for more investment is, you know, pretty pretty clear. Mm. Um, you know, 
the pupils that we're seeing in reception now are going to be sitting their GCSEs, you know, in, I don't know, well, now 2034. So, you know, we're going to have pupils sitting pretty high stakes assessments for, you know, that were affected by COVID for a really long time. Yeah. Um, and I think my, my colleague, Callum Mason, actually was kind of looking into this recently um, in terms of catch-up, um, schools accessing existing catch-up catch. And um, I know that Mary, Mary Louise Clues was looking into this and his story very much looked at the fact that the DfE doesn't seem to want to remove barriers to schools accessing this catch. Um, and there was actually a, a plea from the Association of School and College Leaders uh, this week um, that was knocked back by schools minister Nick Gibb. And this plea was for, for schools to, to use their teaching cash without having to top up the government um, funding amid soaring cost pressures. So, you know, despite, you know, the EEF coming out this week and saying, look, you know, there's an urgent need for this increase in government subsidy, you know, there doesn't seem to be any sort of urgency there. Mm-hmm. I think there was a great line from... Mary Louise in that uh, newsletter that the the DfE needs to be more than just keen to hear ideas from the sector unless it's happy to be seen as the government that uh, consigned a COVID generation to a lifetime of underachievement. I think that was a great line. Yeah, definitely. And I think as well, you know, there's a lot of a lot of conversations going on at the moment for academics that I've spoken to and people involved with it, with it, you know, exams that they're really concerned at the moment about, you know, lost pupils of COVID. So the ones that have fallen behind during the pandemic and for multiple reasons are just kind of going to get lost. And I think there is a misconception at the moment with, you know, exams returning to normal pre-pandemic um, completely next summer. Why does it seem that things are going back to normal when actually we still got this huge, huge knock-on effect going on. So, Yeah. Yeah, of course, you can uh, read more about these stories on our website, as always, tes.com forward slash magazine. You can also read that full newsletter for yourself. Links to subscribe are on our website. Uh, Matilda, thank you again for joining me today. Thanks. A little earlier on the podcast, Matilda mentioned the disadvantage gap. Now, that disadvantage gap has also been borne out in some of our A-level results data. Joining me now to go through that data in a bit more detail and go through some of the key takeaways is senior reporter Gronya Hallahan. Gronya, welcome back. How are you doing today? I'm good, thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, no problem. A pleasure as always. So we're going to be taking a look at some key trends that have come out of the DfE's new A-level results data. Uh, One of the big takeaways here is a bit of mixed news, I guess, and it's that more A's and A-stars are being awarded in STEM subjects, but it also seems to reflect a falling popularity in subjects such as English, Of course, I know you're a big advocate for English. I was a journalism student too, so clearly the subject's been valuable to us. What's the data showing? Yeah, it's a funny one. Whenever I read these things, I think, gosh, who are these kids picking the sciences? What are they thinking? I mean, it's an age-old battle between the STEM subjects on one hand and the arts on the other side and, you know, how the world was made and what we all are, are made up of fighting against how language was born and and the you know how we feel about the world and how thing how we can relate stuff and analyze it ugh and these clash of the titans of course it's not really about us versus them is it but when we look at the the way that the grades are distributed and who is getting those top grades it 
does look like um, the sciences are coming out top. And this is what something that the DfE pulled out themselves in their report. And I thought, oh, I can look a little bit more into this. If there's a much higher in the sciences, what are they getting over in the arts? Like, what was the comparison? So to give you some numbers, if you're studying further maths, 40% of the students who take further maths are getting the top grade. And if you're just studying maths, 22% of the kids are getting the top grade. Let's have a look at some Englishy subjects. You've got English language, 6%. Wow, that's a big difference. <laughs> I did. I really enjoyed your reaction there. Yeah. Uh, oh, um, I just want to point it out that um, I did English language and it did really well. But, you know, one of those mm. few kids. Um, yes, English language, 6%. Not this year, obviously, a long time ago. And I'm sure the, the results were just as tough then. But... English language, 6%, getting the top grade. And I picked out media studies as another example of an art subject that, you know, people think, oh, it's an easy subject. Only 5% of those students are getting the top grade in media studies. So what's this all about? I spoke to some clever statistician people that know about these things. Um, Dave Thompson over at the Fisher Family Trust Data Lab. And he explained to me that this isn't such a surprise. We shouldn't read too much into this because the students that take maths tend to have really strong maths GCSE grades. Mm. So the profile of students who take maths at A-level is much stronger. Whereas look at English language, you have a much wider spread of ability entering in for the, for the A-level. So it makes sense. Like if you put kids in that are really good at maths, they're going to get really good maths grades. And if you don't put in your strongest English... English kids, you're going to get a mix of grades. So it kind of makes sense. I also spoke to some um, people over at the National Association of Teachers of English, Nate, and they were saying, you know, the perception of English as a subject and art subjects, you know, kids tend to think, oh, you know, what jobs can I do with that later on? They see it as a subject that there isn't a clear right or wrong answer, which is obviously not true. Um, but they said that the, the lack of top grades wasn't something that they'd heard themselves as putting putting kids off the study of the subject. But, you know, it's an it's an interesting point that we still, we put so much effort into saying, you know, STEM subjects, they're really cool and they're encouraging a lot of girls to get into STEM. And of course, it was girls that we had studying English. So we're kind of hemorrhaging them. Oh, OK. Taking them away from that. Yeah. yeah, we need to get them back. We should have a big campaign to get boys studying English. Mm, do it that way as well. If we're yeah. taking some girls away from, from English into STEM, take some boys away from STEM and into, yeah. into English. We'll get them back on our team. No, it's not about teams. And I like English and sciences equally well. Both my parents are chemists. Oh, there you go. I know. And then I'm you just... did English. Was that, was that an act of rebellion? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, they knew my math was never good enough to do sciences. I never encouraged it. They knew I, I didn't have it in me. <laughs> mm. So so we've, we've got some other... Um, some other takeaways from this data, and I guess one of the most concerning things to come out of it was that the um, the disadvantage gap is currently the widest on record. So I guess just a bit on that, what, was that particularly surprising or is it, as we've seen kind of elsewhere, likely a knock-on effect from COVID and lockdowns affecting those with less, more? It's one of those things that we'll never, ever be able to properly prove, but I think common sense will tell us that that's had a huge impact on it. When we looked at the data, it's also really important to, to note that 
students from disadvantaged backgrounds are really underrepresented when it comes to A-levels. So the disadvantage gap is probably even bigger than what we think it is because not as many students go on to do A-levels who are from a disadvantaged background as go on to do different qualifications. So we can't compare it like we can compare with GCSEs because generally everybody does GCSEs. Everybody, like the, the vast majority, the crushing majority of kids do GCSEs. <laughs> Whereas when it comes to A-level, it's already really, really selective. And we know that students from disadvantaged backgrounds because of the because of the attainment gap won't have the grade profiles to go on to do A-levels in the first place. Does that make sense? So they're underrepresented already in that in that cohort. And I spoke to um to Carl Cullinane from the Sutton Trust. And the Sutton Trust, you know, everyone knows Sutton Trust, but they're, they're, if you don't, they're a great charity. They do really important work getting um, students onto university courses and helping people from different backgrounds. And they're, they're a charity that does things like summer schools. So if you've got a school with a sixth one college, do look up the Sutton Trust and, and see, see look at the work that they do. But he made the point that, you know, because fewer disadvantaged students go on to do A-levels and they're better off peers, this has an impact on the attainment gap data at post-16. It looks lower than reality because the most academically stronger disadvantaged young people um, do A-levels. So you're more likely to be strong in A-levels if you're disadvantaged. So therefore, the gap isn't, isn't presented as it truly is. Oh, okay. Does that make sense? So, yeah, so if you're... If you're disadvantaged, but you get to A level, you, mm. you've probably done quite a lot of yep. work to get there, and you're going to perform better. Yeah. Okay. There's, you know, there's a there's a there's a lot in this to unpick and to think about. So, yeah, that's a it's quite an interesting one. He explains it in in some really good details, and it's it's worth a read. And we also talk about. Because, of course, if you're not doing A-levels, what are you doing? We've got an analysis of the different vocational qualifications in this piece. Um, something that I know lots of schools are interested in, especially as the T-levels are being introduced. And we also look at the um, outcomes by first language and by ethnicity. And there's some really interesting data in there. So it's definitely worth a read. Look it up. Yeah, we've saved plenty for you to go and, go and check out on that one. Talking of uh, disadvantage gap, that kind of that gap is also borne out in the times table check as well, isn't it? That's our next story that we're moving on to. It is. That's the other the days, the big data that's come out this week. I feel like my week has been full of calculators and Google Sheets and putting <laughs> yeah. in numbers. This is it's been number crunching. Yes, the times table check. So for those of you who don't know how this works, it's an online test that kids do on a computer program. They've got 25 questions. And it's a little bit tough, Josh. You've got, you've got to answer it in six seconds and you've got a three-second gap between questions. <laughs> wow, okay. Yeah, we didn't do anything like that. No, no, you and I didn't. We just no. learned. I just sat there and sang them a couple of times. I used to have times table tests that I regularly failed. Mm-hmm. That was and that was mine. Yeah, we we we've gone over that. That's your that's why you went on to English, was it? So. Yeah, <laughs> mind you, I failed my spelling test as well. So <laughs> I didn't. I wasn't very good at those old little tests. But how about you? Let's. I've got some some times. Oh no, I was worried about this. Yeah. Yeah. All right, eight times five. Eight times five forty. Well, oh, that was in two seconds. Hey, okay. I'm going to just randomly throw them out to you as I'm talking. Yeah. Right. So you have the test. And before the children take the test, they will as I have practice on the software in the months running up to the test. And the results aren't broken down by schools. So this data that we've got today, schools can look at it and compare it to 
their their results. They know their results, but we're not comparing schools with schools, which is quite nice. It makes a, a pleasant change from other horrid league table data that I'm not not a big fan of sticking schools into a big ranking best to bottom. Ugh, we, we don't like that. But yeah, so this is data. That, so teachers, check this out and check how nationally students performed to your cohort and see see what the trends are. Um, what's interesting, you mentioned about the disadvantage gap. We know the disadvantage gap starts really early on and it's clearly apparent in this times table check. So the most common mark was full marks, 25 out of 25. Wow, brilliant. Yeah. Seven times three. 21. Well done. Um, and <laughs> Keeping me on my toes here, trying to host a podcast <laughs> and do some quick math. So 27% of the students got full marks on this times table check. Woohoo, go team. Um, but if we look at disadvantage versus non-disadvantage, the picture changes a little bit. So if you take out the disadvantaged students and just look at the non-disadvantaged students, 30% got full marks, a third. And if you then look at just the disadvantaged students, 18% got full marks. Yeah, that's really quite striking, isn't it? Mm. So, and they, you know, when the DfE pulled out the data and looked at what the most common mark was, sorry, the average mark, and that the gap doesn't look too bad then, but when you look at that very top bit, look at the full marks, 25 out of 25, I think you really start to see what the gap is and it starts to make all of the A-level data, GCSE data, it all makes sense, doesn't it? This gap starts really, really early on. So it's um, it's definitely something to have a little read read about. We've got other points we've picked out in there. Um, and the other thing that I think is notable with the disadvantage gap is the number of disadvantaged students that didn't take the test. Okay. Right, see? This is interesting, isn't it? So if you look at all students who aren't disadvantaged, 97% of them took the test. But if you look at just the disadvantaged students, 93% took the test. So that's 12,979 pupils. Exactly. I did write that number down. <laughs> um, 11 times 9. 99. Well done. Um, they didn't take the test. So I think that's also something to, to consider. And when we think about like how disadvantage manifests itself and all of mm. that kind of stuff, it's, um, it's important. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting stuff. As, I mean, of course, as always, Gronier, thank you for going through this data and making it easy to digest. Uh, there are obviously a few kind of extra points. We didn't have the time to go through all of them today. I guess more accurately, we've saved them so you can go check out the article. Exactly. Yeah, drive some seven traffic that way. Seven times seven. Oh no, 49? Yeah. I knew it was the sevens that might might get me, but I uh, I didn't really have too much time to, to prepare before this. So there you go. Um, yeah, drive yeah. some traffic towards the uh, towards the website. This article and the others we've discussed today all available on the website tes.com forward slash magazine, where you can also currently subscribe for three months for just three pound. That's a fantastic offer for all the quality content we've got that, on there. Is that our Black Friday deal? It's not. That's that's been on that for a couple of months. That's just the deal. Yeah, great deal. Yeah. Thank you as always for listening, and we hope you join us again next time for more of the Tez News podcast. Thank you.